we're in Acts, and we're going to keep pushing through the next few weeks. We're not going to be in Acts, so I thought it would be important for us to go ahead and stay the course, even though it is Father's Day. Stay the course on this, and uh, as we try to get through the this, this great book of Acts. So, uh, kind of to catch you up, if this is your first week here uh, in, in this series, catch you up. We uh, Right now, where we're at, uh, the gospel has spread throughout Jerusalem. Uh, over 10% of the population has uh, in Jerusalem at this time, in the first century, has heard the gospel and responded to their need for a Savior. So the gospel is spread throughout the city. Uh, there has been a, a, a bit of persecution so far up to this point, and, uh, uh, but, that, but they have stayed the course, taking the gospel to people who desperately, desperately need it. The church has pooled their resources uh, under their own accord, under the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. They have pulled, their, pulled together their resources to help those who are in need. Last week we saw that a guy named Barnabas uh, sold some land to help somebody in need. We don't know the details of it. And then Ananias and Sapphira, they, they uh, uh, wanted the same acclaim. They wanted to be thought of well, just like Barnabas. So they sold land and then they lied about it. And uh, they, were, they, they, they were hypocrites and it cost them their life. And we talked about that last week. And that kind of leads into where we pick up the story in chapter 6 of, of Acts this morning. The Hellenists, which are Greek-speaking Jews, uh, have brought a, a concern, a complaint to the apostles. And they have said that their, their widows are not being taken care of. That when every day they were passing out these resources that have been pulled, to, pulled together, and the widows who speak uh, Greek are not being taken care of. And they lodge this complaint, they, they bring this complaint to the apostles. The apostles say, look, we don't have time to, 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 to switch or to turn our energy to take care of that. We need to keep taking the gospel to people who need it. But what I want you to do, church, is I want you to pick seven guys, seven men, who are going to be the caretakers. They're going to be the deacons of the church. People who are, 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 are have a good reputation, who are full of wisdom, who love the whole the, the Lord are filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you to pick seven guys like that. and I want you to bring them to us. We will vet them, and then we will appoint them as deacons to take care of this situation and others that arise like the one that you have brought to us. So that's exactly what the church does. They pick seven people. One of those guys is a guy named Stephen. And they appoint them as deacons, as caretakers of the church. Uh, guys with good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. Well, Stephen gets to work in his job, taking care of the, of, the, of the church, taking care of the other believers. And he takes this gospel, this good news, to people that, that, that need it. Specifically, the Bible tells us, in synagogues. He begins to debate with the synagogue leaders this idea of the gospel. Well, the synagogue leaders, the Bible tells us that, they, that Stephen is outnumbered. There's multiple synagogue leaders to Stephen. And they begin this debate, and Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, out-debates these Jewish leaders, these synagogue leaders, time after time after time. Well, as you can imagine, this really ticks off the leaders. And they begin to, to, to uh, bear a false witness or lie 
against this guy named Stephen. It infuriates the Jewish leaders. And the Sanhedrin has him arrested and brought to the high court before the Sanhedrin to give a defense of these accusations that have been lodged or placed against Stephen. The specifics of the accusations really boil down to two things. That Stephen is teaching and saying that the temple is not important and that the law is not important. This is blasphemous in the Jewish culture. So they have him arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and we pick up the story in chapter 7, verse 1. I'm going to read a lot more, many more verses than I normally do. Normally I'll take three or four or five verses, work our way through them. Different this morning, i got to make three points. I hate doing that, but that's the only way I can figure out how to go through two or three chapters uh, at one time. So, you know, if you don't like it, come back next week and I'll be back to normal, but whatever. <laughs> All right, verse 1 in chapter 7 says this, And the high priest said, this, uh, the high priest said Are these things so? So basically he asked the, the, Stephen, these, these complaints that are launched into you, these things that people are talking about, is it true? Is what they say is what they say true about you and about what you're teaching? Stephen responds, "Brothers and fathers, hear me." And then for the next fifty plus verses, Stephen preaches a sermon. Basically, he gives a defense of everything that has been lodged against him. And we're going to walk through that here in a few minutes. I'm not going to take the time to read all 50 verses. Jump down to verse 51. He closes it out. He kind of gives a summary of everything that he's already taught. Here's what he says. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, who you received the, or you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and, the ground, and they ground their teeth at them. Nobody has ever done that to me. That would be weird. <laughs> Verse 55. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they were stoning Stephen, they called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. This morning, I just want to look at three things from the life of Stephen in this chapter. I want to look at what Stephen said, what Stephen saw, and what Stephen did. What Stephen said, what Stephen saw, 
and what Stephen did. Number one, what did, what did, what did Stephen say in this long, in this long uh, sermon or defense of his teaching? Before we jump in, a little bit of an aside. This is the longest um, sermon by about five or six times in the entire book of Acts. Luke takes the time to write down in great detail what Stephen said, this defense that Stephen gave before the Sanhedrin. Have you ever wondered? Remember, uh, Luke was not, uh, was not present when all of this happened. And whenever he was before the Sanhedrin, when Stephen was before the Sanhedrin, none of the Jewish leaders were present either. Have you ever wondered how Luke got this entire sermon? Well, the text gives us a hint. It says that there was a young man named Saul who was present. And before we even jump in to what Stephen said, I just want to, to kind of shed a little bit of light on this. How many times have you shared the gospel and you thought that it was in vain? I mean, it just it fell on deaf ears. It, it didn't make any difference. Nobody heard it. I can guarantee you Stephen that day thought that his sermon, his defense, fell on deaf ears. And it seemed like it at that day. But the only person who could have possibly told Luke about what Stephen said that day was a young man named Saul. I am confident, I believe with all of my heart, that this sermon started Paul's journey towards Christ. Now, it didn't culminate there. Obviously, he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But Saul heard the sermon, the defense from Stephen, and it began to stir up his heart towards the gospel. Stephen had a very short ministry. It lasted really one sermon. But he changed the world because a young man named Saul heard it. And God began to do a work inside of his heart that ultimately would change the world forever. You and I, are here as a result of, of Paul, Saul, hearing this sermon, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then telling everybody he came in contact with about it. Stephen's, from, from an earthly perspective, it looked like Stephen had a failed ministry. But there's two examples of, of success. And the first one is this. A guy named Saul heard it and was changed. And the world was changed as a result of him. So what Stephen had to say was vitally important because of who heard it. So what did he say? Well, remember the two accusations that were brought against Stephen. Number one is that he taught that the temple was not important. And then number two, that the, that the law was not important. And Stephen begins to defend his teaching. And he says this, first of all, you're right. The temple is not necessary. This is Stephen talking before the Sanhedrin. He says, you're right. The temple is not necessary to meet God. And then he does a brilliant thing. He walks through the Old Testament to defend his, um, his stance on the fact that the temple is not necessary to have a relationship with the Father, to have a relationship with God. And so he walks through the Old Testament to show where he got that belief. And throughout the verses, he basically says this. He says, for example, Abraham, our father Abraham, he didn't have the, the temple and God met with him. He also says, think about Joseph. He was, he was cast into slavery into Egypt. 
He didn't have, he didn't have the, the temple, and yet God met with Joseph. And then he gives another defense. He says, remember Moses. Moses was out in the middle of the desert, and God showed up. You remember this whole burning bush thing, but the bush didn't, didn't, wasn't consumed. God met with Moses, but he didn't have a temple. And then he, he fast forwards and he says, do you remember the prophet Isaiah? The prophet Isaiah had the temple, and even though he had the temple, he wrote down that God doesn't live in a building or in a temple made with hands. The temple is not necessary to meet with God. Well, this infuriated the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, because the temple is where sacrifice was made. It is where our sin, not our sin, but their sin, they thought, was atoned for. They thought that they were supposed to keep the law, do the best that they can. And when they failed, when they, when they did not live up to the standard of the law, then they would go to the temple, they would take an animal, they would sacrifice it, and the blood of that animal would cover or atone, pay for their sin. And then that sin would not be held against them anymore. And Stephen stands before the Sanhedrin and he says, you've got it all wrong. The whole sacrificial system, it's not right. That is not how your sin is ultimately paid for. The temple is not necessary for a relationship with God. And then he turns his attention in the following verses to the law, and he says, look, I'm with you. I think the law is good. I think the law is important. But there's only one problem. If you think you have a relationship with the Father by keeping the law, the bad news is you don't keep it. And then he walks through the Old Testament again. And he says, under Moses, you didn't keep the law. Under, under Aaron, under his brother, you didn't keep the law. The prophet Amos said, you could not keep the law. So I'm with you. I think the law is important. I'm just like you. The law is necessary. But if you think keeping the law gives you a relationship, earns you a relationship with the Father, evidence shows us time after time after time, all throughout the Old Testament, we're not that good. We can't keep the law. And that is basically his sermon summed up into two points. And then he follows it in verse 55 and 56. And he says this. Because of those two things, because the temple is not necessary, because you can't keep the law, the Father, God, sent the righteous one. This is a very unique a term or, or title for Jesus. Why did he call him the righteous one? He called him the righteous one because Jesus fulfilled the law. Well, how do you fulfill the law? There's two ways. Number one, you obey it. Or number two, you pay for it. So let me give you an example. Whenever you leave here in just a little while, you're going to get in your car, you're going to go out down the driveway. Before you get onto the street, the law demands that you stop. There's not a stop sign there. It doesn't matter. You still have to stop. The law of the stop sign uh, mandates that you stop before you go onto the road. Well, how do you fulfill the law? Number one, the one that I suggest, you stop before you turn onto the street. So you pull out. The law says that you stop. You stop there. And then you check both ways. There's no cards. Then you proceed out onto the street. And you have obeyed. You have fulfilled the law by obeying it. There's a second way, though, that you can fulfill the law. 
You can hit the gas. You can blow right through the stop sign. A police officer hopefully will see you, pull out, turn on their lights, pull you over, give you a ticket. I don't know this from experience. I'm just assuming that's how it happens. But um, we'll give you a ticket, and then you can head to the courthouse, pull out your wallet, and pay for the ticket. You can pay for the law that you broke. And after you give them the money, after you've paid for the ticket, the law of the stop sign has no claim on you anymore. Those are the two ways that you can fulfill the law. The same is true with God's law. And Jesus, the righteous one, did both. According to Stephen. He stands before the Sanhedrin and he says the righteous one. The one who fulfilled the law. He was born. He obeyed the law. And he, kept, he obeyed it perfectly. He never broke it not one time. And in that way he fulfilled the law. But secondly, he also paid for it. Because he loves you and me. Because he loves sinners. The law demands... That to pay, you have to shed your blood and die. And Stephen tells the Sanhedrin, the righteous one, he obeyed it, and then he paid for it. He did both. Because of his love for sinners. And so the first thing that Stephen did, or the first thing that he said, or the thing that, he, that Stephen said was, the temple's not necessary for a relationship with God. The law's important, but you can't keep it. And that is why God sent the righteous one who fulfilled the law both by obeying it and paying for it. But then he closes out his sermon by saying, but you have rejected him. That's what Peter said. Number two, what Peter saw. I'm sorry, what Stephen saw. Those who were killing Stephen especially saw, we're going to find this out down the, down the line in the, next, in the coming weeks as we continue through Acts. But Saul and the Sanhedrin had never seen anybody die the way that Stephen died. They had never seen anybody die with such grace. They had never seen anybody die in such peace. Well, how could Stephen die with such dignity? How could he die with such grace? Well, it's because of what Stephen saw. Verse 55 and 56 tells us what Stephen saw. It says in uh, verse 55, But he, full of the Holy Spirit, that Stephen gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is basically the throne, the throne room or the courtroom. That is, that, that's, that's where the throne room or the courtroom is, the right hand of God. All throughout the New Testament, it talks about Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. The reason is because his job has been fulfilled. He's, he's lived perfectly, died perfectly, rose victoriously. His job has been completed. So he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he sits there because his job has been completed. <clears throat> this week when I was studying, I think this is the only time in all of the New Testament that it says that Jesus was not seated next to the Father in heaven. This text tells us that he was standing there. Well, why would Jesus be standing in the courtroom, in the throne room? The reason is because he was giving a defense. He was being an advocate for Stephen. 
F.F. Bruce, he wrote a great commentary on the book of Acts. He put it like this. While Stephen is confessing Christ before men, he sees Christ confessing Stephen before God. Stephen got a glimpse into heaven. And while all of this earth, all of the people on this earth had turned their back on him or were not able to save him, while these, these Jewish people, these Jewish leaders picked up stones and threw them at Stephen, ultimately killing him, Stephen had no advocate here. But he was able to glimpse into heaven. He was able to get a glimpse into heaven and he saw Jesus was standing up in the courtroom giving a defense, being an advocate for Stephen before the Father. That is cool. And this morning, if you sit here and you know Christ, your sin has been forgiven, the same is true for you. Right now, the Son is advocating on your behalf. Not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, which has covered you. The Son advocates before the Father on your behalf. This world will, I guarantee you, turn their back on you. You will be let down by the people that are closest to you. Your husband is not good enough to always meet your needs, to, needs, to always be at your back, to always fulfill your needs. Your wife is not good enough. Your parents are not good enough. Your grandparents, they love you. They're not that good. They will not always and perfectly advocate for you. But the son will, if you know Jesus this morning. That's a cool truth to hold on to. When times are tough, when the world has turned their back, the Son still advocates on your behalf. Number one, what Stephen said. Number two, what Stephen, Stephen saw. Number three, what Stephen did. What Stephen did. Verse 59, following, uh, tracking down through 8.1, shows us what Stephen did. It says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Verse 1 of chapter 8. Saul approved of his execution, and when they arose on that day, a great persecution against the, the church in Jerusalem. And all were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. You see how God used it, Stephen? You see how he used his persecution? Remember back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the whole premise of our, of our study, that God was going to take the gospel to Jerusalem, but it wasn't going to stay there. God was going to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria, the, the surrounding area, but it wasn't going to stay there. The gospel was going to go to every corner of the world. This was good news, but it was not just good news for the Jews. It was not just good news for Jerusalem. It was good news for everybody. Red, yellow, black, or white. It does not matter. This is good news for them. It doesn't matter if you speak Greek, if you speak Hebrew, if you speak English, German, Russian, Chinese. It does not matter. This is good news for everybody. But up until this point, nobody had left in a strategic way the city 
of Jerusalem. It was not until Stephen has been persecuted and his life has been taken that God in his providence, in his sovereignty, uses that event, uses that persecution to push the Christians outside of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In his providence, in God's providence, he uses this persecution for the advancement of the gospel. Stephen's short ministry really summed up into one season of life and one sermon. God used in his sovereignty to change the world forever. When God pushed the Christians outside of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas and ultimately to the ends of the earth. One takeaway, and then we're done. When it seems like God is silent, when it seems like God is not present, when it doesn't seem like God is at work, He is still sovereign. He is still on His throne. And he is still orchestrating events, just like He did with Stephen, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to draw people in your office, in your neighborhood, in your circle of influence to himself. What a great truth. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for Stephen and I thank you for his ministry. Lord, I thank you for his defense, what he said. Lord, I thank you for the great news of what he saw, an advocate, your son, advocating on our behalf if we know you this morning. If we've been covered by the blood of the, son, of the Lamb of the Son, he advocates on our behalf, and then ultimately, what he did, God, you are a big God, and you can even use persecution for the advancement of the gospel. I pray that we would hold on to that truth as the, the persecution begins to ramp up even in our day and age, in our culture, in our nation. We know you're at work. We've seen it in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.